Well, welcome tonight. Thank you for being here. Let me invite your attention to a text on which you have probably never heard a sermon. It's good to go through books of the Bible because you um, are exposed to some passages you would never cover otherwise and some subjects. And I have found something really remarkable about biblical preaching and this kind of preaching. One, when you preach through books of the Bible, it's remarkable how timely the passages are. You know, I'm just going passage by passage or chapter by chapter. And what folks will tell me after the service is, that's exactly what I went through this week and that's what I needed to hear this week. And it's interesting the timing that happens with that. But there is a second thing going on oftentimes in preaching that preachers know that you, you may not be aware of if you're not a preacher. And that is, between the preacher's mouth and the people's ears, if God's hand is on him, that the people are praying for him, between his mouth and her, their ears, the Spirit takes the words and turns them into something unique. That happens oftentimes because it happens nearly every week that after the service, somebody will come up to me and say, you know this morning when you said, and then they'll make a statement I never made. But they heard it. They heard it. Most of the time they heard it. <laughs> they, they, don't, they don't always interpret things right. But um, um, most of the time they've heard it. Not because I've said it, but because who has? The Holy Spirit. And I saw that demonstrated back in the summer of 1988. It, uh, it occurred to me what was happening. I had had that experience of people coming up and saying, you know, this morning when you said, and they'd say something I didn't say. And I thought, well, they're just making it up in their heads. But then I came to a different conclusion. And that is, um, God's Spirit was speaking. Because uh, one summer, I was a centrifuge camp pastor, and I preached every week, uh, five nights a week, a uh, different group every week for about 10 weeks. And there was one particular message I preached every week uh, at a Song of Solomon, chapter 1, on dating and uh, romantical afflictions and that kind of thing, okay? And I, I would preach that message. And for the first four or five weeks, there was a statement I made every week, but I felt like it got tired. And I would revise the message every week, and I removed that statement out of the message week six. And after the service, a young lady came up to me, and she said, you know, uh, she came to me the next day. She said, you know last night when you said, and she quoted back that identical statement that I'd removed two weeks before. And I thought, God really does anoint and bless the preaching experience. That's why we preach the Bible. That's why we communicate. So uh, I'm, I'm very confident in preaching Genesis chapter 23, uh, though it might appear to be at first irrelevant. Now, as you're turning there, let me say we've got a big weekend coming up with us. I am thrilled. I'm excited. Chris Orr and Marla and Abigail and Whitley are going to be with us. And uh, we're, we've been looking forward to and excited uh, for this uh, weekend. And we'll be voting right after the service uh, on Sunday, extending a call to uh, Chris Orr to uh, come. And uh, we're really, really thrilled. Uh, Chris has requested that we do a meet and greet with the folks. Uh, that's kind of an unusual thing in most churches. Uh, we practice it, uh, but uh, usually they just do what the committee tells them to. But here at Beach Haven, we uh, do have a meet and greet, and he's requested that we do that. We've got that uh, scheduled at 11 o'clock. Now, the band will practice some other time, the choir afterwards. Uh, but Chris is going to be available if you've got any questions for him and want to talk with he or Marla uh, before or after. In fact, I'm going to give him the microphone. Uh, Chris is really articulate. 
Uh, he not only has a stellar, top-notch singing voice, he, he really speaks very well. Uh, and he's not trying to impress you. He doesn't quite sound like Adrian Rogers, not saying that. But uh, he's got a really good speaking voice. And then um, uh, he's uh, really engaging as well. Marla is a sweetheart. And uh, you're, you're going to have a good time with him. So uh, be here if you can uh, for that. If not, pray for us and ask God to do a neat, neat work. Now, I've gotten a, we, we've had three people ask, staff members, uh, this week, is Chris overqualified for the position? And I, I, I hadn't thought about that. But uh, no, let me, let me just tell you a little bit something here. Uh, and, and honey, I don't mean, uh, darling, I don't mean any offense, okay? I don't mean any offense. But moving from Tennessee to Georgia is a step up. I, I'm, I'm not trying to be ugly. <laughs> okay, don't get too rowdy on me now, okay? But um, Nashville is not Athens and Tennessee's not Georgia. Baptist life in Georgia is miles ahead not only of Tennessee, but all the other states. Uh, theologically and otherwise, you can trust Georgia Baptist. Uh, you can trust the churches. And um, uh, we're, we're miles ahead of most other states. And I'm, I'm inc- I don't mean to be critical. I love pastoring in Alabama, North and South Carolina. Um, I love Texas, but Georgia is miles ahead of Texas in Baptist life and church life. Uh, there's also uh, a lot more support for ministers in Georgia, and uh, though Chris is um, uh, uh, coming uh, to us, I, I, I don't want to say too much. We don't talk a lot about compensation, but he's going to be okay, all right? So uh, let me just say, say that, and uh, think things will go well. So, um, um, uh, but you know, I, I hadn't thought about that question. He's written so many songs, as you've seen uh, in his resume, and uh, we listed them in a uh, separate document and cut some albums, and, and uh, he trains uh, other worship leaders. So uh, th- this is really the direction I'm wanting us to go uh, with a tier one candidate. And I want us to move forward, move onward, upward, and God's got his hand on him. It's really, really neat. And he brings a lot to the table. And uh, uh, I've already bonded with him. And uh, our staff, some of our staff have too. But in Genesis chapter 23, what we've got here is that we got the story of Sarah passing away and Abraham having to bury her. Well, how's that relevant to me? Well, hold on. I'm going to show it to you in just a minute by saying uh, this. Uh, oftentimes when a storm comes through an area, uh, it, it's surprising the results it leaves behind. I have seen trees blown over by storms, uh, obliterated almost by storms, uh, trees that uh, had full foliage, trees that looked uh, healthy as far as their bark was concerned, and uh, were otherwise uh, very strong trees, but when they blew over, they were hollow on the inside. The storm revealed their weakness. Abraham here feels the howling storm of his wife's death. Most likely, he and Sarah had been married for more than a century. They had been married to one another for more than 100 years. Now, one fellow leading music at 4 o'clock today said, I've only been married 51, but it feels... And he backed up. <laughs> uh, I've been married 28 years, and it feels like 28 minutes. All right. Anything you can do to score points. Hey, I'm preaching on that Sunday, by the way. Sunday, pray for me. I'm preaching on the subject, how to get married. Okay? So, uh, she did well, and I thought I'd take some lessons from, from that. And I did too. So, uh, pray for me. But anyway, uh, uh, Sarah and Abraham had been married 
uh, it appears, for more than a century. More than a century, and he loses her. Now, I know they lived longer back then, but folks, that's got to be difficult. That's got to be a challenge. Now, when that happened, what came out of Abraham? Well, the first thing that came out happened to be tears. Look at verses 1 and 2. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in Kirhath, Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Now someone might look at that, some critical person might look at that and say, well, I thought Abraham was the man of faith. What is he doing weeping? There is nothing contradictory between weeping over a lost loved one, uh, someone that you've lost, and, um, uh, and, and faith. There's no contradiction between that at all. Uh, the truth is, is that you, you, don't, um, you don't like to see death grip someone that you love. You, you don't like seeing that at all. And we, we need to be real careful, by the way, when we talk about death as Christians. Death is not a friend because it gets us into heaven. That's not true. Death, death is an enemy. It gets us into heaven because Jesus has won the victory. But death does not look good on us. I had an aunt. Every time we'd have a family funeral, she'd come up and say, oh, how natural. With the biggest, most obnoxious smile on her face. And I thought, this is outrageous. And she was a sincere Christian woman. But this is not, no, no, that's my mom. She's dead. Stop smiling. Death is not a friend. Uh, death is not beautiful. Death is the enemy, and one day Jesus is going to swallow it up in victory. Swallow it up in victory is what 1 Corinthians 15 says. Because death is an enemy. It has a sting. Now, he's removing it. He'll remove it with the resurrection. And he inaugurated that with his own resurrection. But death is painful. No wonder Jesus is standing in John 11 in front of the tomb of Lazarus, beloved. And the first Bible verse that when they have a choice, children memorize. John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. He weeps. Now, folks, he's about to raise the man from the dead, and he's still weeping over his death. There's no contradiction between uh, faith and tears. None whatsoever. The, 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 the reason is, is that this person, this person has been, has succumbed to death. And it doesn't look good on them. So when they die, you feel free to weep all you want to. I was really worried about my folks in my first church. We were in an area of the state where they did not weep in funerals. I did loads of funerals. I did 12 funerals in December and January of 93 and 94. I did constant funerals at that particular church. And one time in a funeral did I see anybody weep. I don't think that's healthy. Now maybe they went privately or with family or someplace else, but it's okay to do that. Abraham, the man of faith, does it and it may be real faith that enables you to weep because you know you get past it. You'll know you're recovered. It does remind me of Vance Havner, though. Someone came up to him after he lost his wife, Sarah, and said, um, hey, I'm sorry that you, uh, sorry you lost your wife. He said, well, you've only lost them if you don't know where they are. You see, whenever you know where they are, you can go ahead and weep. You don't have to be afraid to because you can make it through that. 
Because Jesus Christ holds the future of every believer and holds them and shepherds them even in death. And that is the hope and the promise of the gospel. So tears come out. And that's the first thing. And I think that that is uh, entirely appropriate. Now let me say to you, and, and let me give you a um, little pastoral caution here. A little pastoral um, um, well, caution is the best word. If a family is at odds with one another and they don't resolve it, it will come out at big family events, oftentimes. Some of the biggest knock-down, drag-out family uh, conflicts take place at funerals and weddings. I have seen it. I have seen members of family so uptight and upset with each other that uh, at a wedding they got into a fracas back in the reception hall that it took the attention off the bride and groom. And I've seen funerals where in the lobby they got so intense and raised their voices so loud they took the attention off the deceased. Folks, when that happens, that's usually the result of poor leadership in the family. Let me tell you what you do. If you know there's a problem in a family and it can be expressed and they are like uh, and uh, apt to bring it up at a family event, man of the house, you go meet with the people involved and sweetly, lovingly tell them, fix it. There needs to be a patriarch or at least a matriarch in every family that tells people what to do. Now, you be sweet. You be kind, but you don't let people get wild and out of control in your family because you will bring dishonor on your name. Don't do that. You, you make sure. You don't practice weak leadership. You don't be weak there. Because at a wedding, the bride and groom and their Savior is to be the focus, not two people that got a falling out with each other. At a funeral, the deceased and his Lord or her Lord is to be the focus, not a couple of people that have been feuding for each other with each other, uh, for uh, a number of years. No, 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 no. You take leadership and you make sure, sweetly, kindly, that they get it fixed. You don't need to get in the middle of it. You just tell them to get it fixed. You practice that kind of leadership. I did that to Jonathan and Hannah Grace when they were three and four years old. <laughs> in fact, I, I told you a few weeks ago, I made up a rap. And uh, when they would uh, have difficulty with each other, I'd break out in a rap. Man, I've been rapping for a long time. Uh, you, you would be, uh, you, you might, no, you wouldn't be impressed. <laughs> They're not impressed anymore. But I'd break out into it when they had some difficulty. And I've told them through the years, as I said, as you all get older and as our family expands, you're going to love each other and accept each other, okay? Or you're not merely going to have to answer to each other. You're going to have to answer to me. So you're not going to have any of this feuding with each other. We're not going to do that in our family. Jesus doesn't like ugly, and we don't do ugly in our family. So... You take leadership on that. Well, Abraham doesn't have that problem here. There are tears. When the storms of death blow upon him and you look inside Abraham, tears come out. But there's a second thing, commitment. Commitment comes out. Now, Abraham has had a difficult time every time he has left the promised land and he's gone to Egypt. In Genesis 13, Genesis 20, he goes there and he has a difficult time. He compromises his integrity with Pharaoh and Abimelech. And he struggles. God chastises him and, and uh, he embarrasses himself. This time, this time, he stays in Egypt. He stays in Egypt. 
and um, he um, uh, makes a commitment to the promised land. God has told him, this is your land. I'm going to give it to you and your descendants. And if you'll do a 360-degree turn all the way around, everything you can see is going to belong to you. Okay? This is going to be your land. And so he has to stay there where God is going to provide. And what happens is, is that he is committed to it. Now, verses 3 through 9. Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth. I'm a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. So what happens here is that Abraham recognizes all these years, I'm still a foreigner and a visitor after all this time. I've not purchased property here. And the first bit of property I'm going to purchase is going to be a burial place for my family. Now let me ask you something. If Abraham is buying a burial place for his family members, which they will use throughout the generations, where is Abraham going to live the rest of his days? He's going to live in Canaan. He's going to live within a comfortable distance of the burial place is exactly what he's going to do. Okay? So Abraham, by purchasing this property, is not only purchasing property by which he would live, he's purchasing a special kind of property, and that happens to be burial property right there because he's going to stay there for the rest of his life. He makes a commitment to the place where God wants him to be. And so he goes from being a foreigner and visitor in verse 3 and 4 to being an actual resident that is there, that embraces the people. It sends a message to everyone there, I am here, I am here forever. I had a professor when I was in school that said, when you go into a pastorate, make sure that you real quickly unpack your boxes in your office. He said, I failed to do that. I was in a student pastorate and I took my library up to my church and in the office, and I just left all the books and boxes for a long time. And that sent a message to the people that I wasn't staying. And so they really didn't take my leadership very, very seriously. Abraham here unpacks everything. He unpacks everything. So with um, that professor's advice, that's the first thing I've done anytime I've arrived on a field. I put my books up. Okay? In fact, we're talking about looking for burial plots here in the Athens area. This is where we are. This is our intention to stay and uh, to live uh, to the end of our days right here in this place. If uh, God will have us and you'll have us. That's the heart of Abraham here. He's announcing, I'm staying, I am committed to this place and uh, makes it abundantly clear. And aren't you glad he did? He and his descendants have been there all through the centuries and generations so that today you can go there and it's the coolest thing in the world. It's marvelous. How many of you have been to the Holy Land? It is a marvelous, marvelous place. All because Abraham decided, I am staying. I'm identifying here with this place. Now, when he says in verse 4, I'm a foreigner and visitor among you, it reminds me of social relationships that I discovered in my first pastorate. I was in a county that uh, had been distressed for about a century. And... Um, it had been distressed in a number uh, of uh, ways. And God did some neat things there while, um, uh, that we got to witness while, while serving there. But um, it had been distressed. But there was a unique kind of person in the county, many of whom were members of my church. And those from the outside that moved in 
were called them blue bloods. Do you know what a blue blood is? Someone whose family goes back several generations. Now, sometimes that was used derisively. Um, sometimes it was not. And, uh, and all, but I became friends with all of them, all of them that I could, especially about four or five older deacons uh, that were blue bloods. Their families had gone there, had been there multiple generations, and I became friends with them, and they really taught me how to be a pastor because I would do a lot of visiting, and I would take them with me. And they would instruct me, they would guide me, they kept me out of some trouble, making some stupid decisions. Of course, that didn't always work, but um, they, they helped me in remarkable ways. But um, some of the folks that moved from the outside of the county into the county for work or whatever, they found it sometimes difficult to break into the social circle of the Blue Bloods. And they didn't, the, the Blue Bloods didn't mean to be that way, it's just they were satisfied, had been satisfied for about four or 500 years. Okay? And it was hard to welcome new people. And so we had to work on that. And I got a lot of cooperation with them. I really, really did. And I, I've got to say, uh, that was a marvelous, marvelous group of people. Um, and I, but uh, to illustrate that, uh, one fella, before I got there, moved in 25 years before. He ran a grocery store there, owned and actually operated a grocery store that was rather prosperous uh, in the community there, and uh, became a deacon at the church. And he was one of the fellows that really helped me and taught me how to be a pastor. Wasn't a blue blood. He was the only one that wasn't. But uh, he um, was meeting with one of our other deacons who was a blue blood uh, uh, after church one Sunday night. And the two of them were standing outside the worship center. And R.L., the fellow who moved from the outside, said to Wentz Holiday, the blue blood, he said, uh, Wentz, you told me when I moved here 25 years ago that if I stayed... And after 25 years of living here, you all might think about letting me in. He said, well, it's been 25 years. And Wentz said, well, think about it. <laughs> hey, do you know something? Abraham tried to get in and they let him in. Let's never, ever, 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 ever be the kind of people that are hard to penetrate. Let's keep our heart open. Let's keep our hearts open on Sunday mornings. You do well with that. Let's keep our hearts open and our relationships open on Wednesday nights. Let's notice who is here. Let's let people in to where we are. Abraham made a commitment. We need to as well. Then there, there are tears, there's commitment, and then there's restraint. There is restraint. Look at verse number 10. Uh, this is kind of lengthy here, but uh, let's go uh, beginning in verse 10 down to verse 18. And this, these are uh, Abraham's um, negotiations with Ephron in front of the city fathers uh, for property in which to bury Sarah. Now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered the gate of his city, saying, Abraham's offered to buy the property. He, he wants some property. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that's in it. I give it to you in your presence and the sons of my people. I give it to you, bury your dead. Now look back at verse 9. He said, I give you the cave and the property. <laughs> well, look how uh, Abraham, uh, look at the request he makes in uh, verse number, let's start in verse 8. If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with Ephron, the son of Zophar for, Zohar for me that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has. 
Well, Ephron comes back and doesn't offer the cave. He offers what? The cave and the land. Okay? So verse 11 again. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that's in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of the people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. And Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you'll give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying, Oh, my Lord, listen to me. The land's worth 400 shekels of silver. What's that between you and me? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened and gave him 400 shekels. Now, you may not understand what's going on here, but there's a negotiation process that takes place, and there's some customs. A fellow like Abraham, the buyer, would come up and uh, request purchasing some land, and the seller would say, ah, that's nothing, just, just take it, I give it to you freely. He didn't mean it, that's just the way he did negotiations, it would open negotiations. And the seller would come back and say, no, no, I'll pay you money for it, which, um, and I'll pay you anything you want for it. Uh, the uh, seller would then come back with a price. And here, Ephron comes back with a price that most of the commentators choke over. And you know how you do negotiations. You start as high as you think you can without causing someone to turn away and walk away. And, uh, but Ephron does that, and he goes higher. Ephron not only sets the price at 400 shekels of silver, which the commentators choke on, but Ephron also says, if you want the cave to bury your wife, you've got to take the land with it. This joker is an opportunist. He sees a wealthy, grieving man, and he tries to get in on his wealth, is what he's doing. And he says, okay, uh, 400 shekels, what's that between you and me? Usually what would happen is that the buyer, like Abraham, would either walk away or he would haggle with the price. Abraham does neither. He just buys the property. Now what should have happened at this point is that Ephron should have said, no, 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 you're grieving, let's cut the price, or let me just give you the cave and I'll keep the land. Make some kind of deal and bring down the price. He doesn't do any of it. Ephron is greedy. He is exposed before the city fathers where you made deals like this with witnesses. They sort of served as a generation after generation notary public and witnesses to the transaction. And before the city fathers, Abraham accepts his price and leaves Ephron vulnerable. And Abraham could have blistered him. Abraham could have ruined that man's reputation among the city fathers, but instead what he does is that he refuses to haggle and he just pays the price. Abraham has got some restraint in him. Whenever, whenever he was squeezed like a sponge, what came out of Abraham was restraint. It's exactly what happened. Abraham held his tongue and what came out was restraint. Um, I don't know who said it, but someone sung it one time. Sometimes you say something best when you say nothing at all. And that's what Abraham did here as well. Abraham Lincoln said, by the way, another Abraham, he said, it is better to be silent and to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. 
That's true. That's what Abraham did. You know, it's really hard to look at this passage, though, with Abraham's restraint and to fail to consider someone else's restraint. I mean, he's been beaten to a pulp. He's been whipped to where his back has been turned into ribbons of quivering flesh. It's very likely some internal organs were exposed. A crown of thorns had been forcibly pressed and beaten on his head. The God of all creation had been mocked by the creature, puny little things. He'd been falsely accused. He'd endured multiple, about a dozen illegalities in a Jewish trial the night before. He'd been declared not guilty, to use current language, four, possibly five times by a man trained in Roman jurisprudence. He was taken to the cross and nailed there, standing in front of people who were mocking him. Some of the most guilty, ruthless people in human history. Mocked in that way. And yet, when he is squeezed, what comes out of him is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. It's hard to imagine that Abraham isn't thinking similar thoughts about Ephron. Jesus did that because he's demonstrating the great grace and love of God before the world. And Abraham, when he is squeezed, tears come out, commitment comes out, restraint comes out, What Abraham does is that he lives a marvelous Christ-like example before his community, even before Jesus has come to the world, is what he has done. And by his power, he can help us do the same. When we're squeezed, we can do just like Abraham did. Father, I thank you in Jesus' name for the good news of the gospel. I praise you for it, and I want to pray that you'll strengthen us.